Hello, and welcome to Rare Adventures, Journeys Through Early Modern Europe and Beyond, Episode 2, As Long As Richard Had His Liberty. Last time, we left off with England becoming a republic, and Anne sailing off to Ireland, where royalist forces were still holding out. I thought it might be helpful at this point to take stock of what's been happening across the three kingdoms. Each kingdom had its own rebellion, the Scottish Covenanters, the Irish Catholic Confederates, and the English Parliamentarians. And they'd all been doing very well for themselves. But, like many a revolutionary movement, success had led to internal squabbles about what to do next. In England, differing religious attitudes between groups of Puritans were coming to the fore. Puritans were by and large happy to be rid of Charles's bishops, but a bitter divide had emerged between those who wanted to replace them with Scottish-style Presbyterianism and those who wanted individual congregations, provided they adhered to Calvinist theology, to be able to organise themselves however they liked. It's worth noting that the posher Puritans tended to favour Presbyterianism. The Independents, or Congregationalists as they are sometimes called, also included some socially radical voices, often referred to as levellers, which the Puritan gentry balked at. Besides, Presbyterianism's clearly defined parish structures offered much more opportunity for them to exert their authority within their communities. The other political manifestation of this religious divide found itself in two pressing questions what to do about the king, and what to do about the solemn Scots. For the Presbyterians, the ideal outcome was for the king to adopt Presbyterianism, acknowledge the privilege of Parliament, and then they could all settle down to persecuting the Irish, as the English throughout history are so wont to do. The Scots, as you might imagine, had their backs on this. For the independents, including a chap called Oliver Cromwell, whom you may have heard of, this raised two alarming prospects. Firstly, the chance that the Presbyterians would concede on politics to get their way on religion, and secondly, that the King and the Presbyterians would then have a massive Scottish army to impose their will. The solemn Scots, meanwhile, were split between the engagers, who sought to strike a deal with the King, and the more dogmatic Kirk party, who opposed making any sort of compromise. When the engagers did indeed come to terms with Charles, Cromwell and the independents had to act fast. The king was executed, and Cromwell led his recently revamped English army off to fight the Scots. Loss of the king and military defeat at the hands of Cromwell shattered the credibility of the engagers. The Kirk party found itself in the ascendancy. Meanwhile, in Ireland, rebellion had taken a very different form. From the outset, the Confederacy had maintained a clear line. They were demanding religious freedom, no more and no less. They were adamant in their support for the King, and made no demands to change the status of Ireland within the Three Kingdoms. After all, any controversial political demands risked, risked undermining their primary goal of gaining Irish Catholics the same rights as Protestants. Indeed, having established their control over much of Ireland, the Confederacy formed a government modelled after the one in Dublin, and continued to proclaim Charles as their sovereign. 
This policy was at first very effective in maintaining coherency among the Confederates, but it put the Royalists in a tricky position. Concessions to the Irish would gain their support against rebels in Scotland and England, but would further alienate those kingdoms' populations. And so hostilities and negotiations continued in Ireland, but to little avail. But the more parliamentarian power grew, the more Irish Confederates became willing to compromise with the Royalists and form a united front. Simultaneously, more hardline Confederates began to demand greater Irish autonomy along with freedom of conscience. Eventually, though, the Marquis of Ormond, and Elizabeth's husband, if you remember, managed to work out a deal just days before the king's execution. Confederates and royalists in Ireland could finally join against their common enemy, but with Cromwell's victory in Britain, that enemy was looking more powerful than ever. Anne and Richard were reunited at Youghal and took up residence at Red Abbey in Cork. Despite the military presence, this was a brief period of peace, and, as Anne writes, we began to think of making our abode there during the war, for the country was fertile and all provisions cheap and the houses good. And they made some friends, including the chaplain of the Royalist garrison, Michael Boyle, in whose house they were staying, and the garrison commander, Colonel Jeffreys. Anne had another child on the way, and she seems to have let herself hope for a more settled life than she had led so far. But the good times did not last long. As with everything in this story, it seems, the ensuing disaster was preluded by infant mortality. They received news that their second son, Henry, back in England, had died. Reports were also arriving from the fleet. Prince Rupert had proved to be a pretty decent pirate, but on his return the fleet had been caught in a series of storms. He'd lost his flagship, his brother, hundreds of crewmen, and most of the loot. And also Cromwell invaded. Anne had recently fallen off her horse and broken her wrist, and so it was that one night, while Richard was away in Kinsale, trying to figure out what had happened to Rupert's ships, that Anne was lying in bed, throbbing pain in her wrist, no doubt fearing for her unborn child, when suddenly she heard cannons firing. What was going on? It couldn't be an attack. Cromwell was still miles away. Screams soon followed. Anne ran to a window and called to a passerby, asking what had happened. Colonel Jeffreys and the Royalist troops had defected to Cromwell. They'd seized the town and massacred the unsuspecting Confederates. All the native Irish were being attacked and driven out. Anne had to think, think fast. First of all, she wrote a note to Richard, explaining what had happened, and telling him to stay in Kinsale. She sent it off with a servant who climbed over the abbey wall and snuck off through the night. Then she packed his papers. These were a treasure trove of information about the royalist cause, from which the identities of any number of spies, informants, and sympathizers could be gleaned. She also packed up all their money and their more portable valuables. It was a lot to lug around, and with all their servants, slipping over walls and hiding in shadows wasn't going to be an option, especially not with a broken wrist and a baby on the way. So, leaving it all ready to go, Anne and a couple of servants went into town to find Colonel Jeffreys. In her typically offhand sort of way, Anne describes them 
passing through an unruly tumult with their swords in their hands. But she found Jeffreys, and hoping his friendship would prove truer than his political loyalty, asked him for a pass to see her safely out of the town, not mentioning anything about confidential documents. And rolled a natural 20 for persuasion, and he instantly wrote me a pass, both for myself, family, and goods, and said he would never forget the respect he owed your father. Got a bit awkward for Jeffreys a few days later when Cromwell showed up saying, Hey, nice coup, and you got that Richard Fanshawe guy, right? You did, right? Oh. By then, Anne, her daughter, their servants, and all those papers were safely in Kinsale with Richard. Richard then got his orders from the new king, Charles II. The plan for him to go to Spain was back on. Richard had some things to sort out in Limerick, though, and on the way they stopped at Macrom Castle, where they were hosted by the Catholic Earl, Don Jamacare. He'd been with the Confederacy since the beginning and was conducting a guerrilla campaign against Cromwell. Still, he found time to lay on a very noble entertainment for the Fanshawes, and his wife, who was also the Marquis of Ormond's sister, gave Anne a greyhound as a present. Once in Limerick, Richard met up with James Dillon, Earl of Roscommon and Lord Chancellor of Ireland, and the Bishop of Derry. They all had a lot of I-don't-know generic spy stuff to do and worked late into the night. Being I-don't-know generic spy stuff, they couldn't really have anyone listening in, and gave all the servants a night off. Problem was, this meant that no one had lit any candles, and once they'd finished their I-don't-know-generic-spy stuff and were going to bed, James Dillon managed to fall down the stairs, split his head open, and die. This was all kinds of awkward, but one particularly irksome thing was that, as Lord Chancellor, he was the Keeper of the King's Seal. And this wasn't just a title, it meant he had an actual physical seal, and now... Richard and the Bish were left with said seal, wondering what to do with it. So they had to write off to Charles II, who, if you remember, was then in the Netherlands. It would be about a month until they got a response. So the Fanshaws went off to stay with Mercha O'Brien, the Protestant Baron of Inchquin. This guy was known among the Irish as Mercha Natotchen. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it means Mercha of the Burnings. This was due to his uh, tendency during campaigns to set fire to everything he could see. He'd fought against the Confederates and in fact had come up against Don Jamacare a few times. He'd also had a stint of fighting for Parliament, mostly just to annoy the Marquis of Ormond. So, all in all, he was a bit of a geezer. But, seeing as Cromwell was rampaging around for the whole time they were there, staying with someone politically ambiguous probably made sense. By this time, Anne writes, my Lord Lieutenant, the now Duke of Ormond's army, was quite dispersed, and himself gone for Holland, and every person concerned in that interest shifting for their lives, and Cromwell went through as bloodily as victoriously, many worthy persons being murdered in cold blood, and their families quite ruined. This is one of the most infamous events in Irish history. Hundreds of thousands lost their lives in fighting massacres, famine, and disease. 50,000 Irish prisoners were sold as indentured servants, essentially slaves, in the Caribbean. Historians debate over whether to characterize this as genocide. 
Revisionists often point out that this level of violence was not unusual at the time. The recent Thirty Years' War on the continent had seen similar extremes, but from reading primary sources, it's hard not to see the violence, whatever its extent, as specifically ethno-religious. Anne is unusually sympathetic towards the Irish, but even for her there is no question of their ethnic difference. For a parliamentarian soldier fed up on propaganda describing the barbarity of the Irish and the evil of Catholicism, it was a short step from this sense of difference to overt racial hatred. However, it may compare to continental wars, the results were nightmarish. Anne and Richard were mostly shielded from directly witnessing these atrocities. The Baron of Inchquin gave them very kind entertainment and vast plenty of fish and fowl, but they didn't spend their whole time with him. They also went to stay a few nights with someone Anne calls Lady Honor O'Brien, a lady that went for a maid, but few believed it. Whatever that's referring to. Anne also says that she was the youngest daughter of the Earl of Thomond. I can't actually work out who this person is. Regardless, though, it got weird. On their first night staying with this lady, Anne had just gotten off to sleep when, about one o'clock, I heard a voice that wakened me. I drew the curtain, and in the casement of the window, I saw, by the light of the moon, a woman leaning into the window through the casement, in white, with red hair and pale and ghastly complexion. The woman gave three shrieks, and then with a sigh, more like the wind than breath, she vanished, and to me her body looked more like a thick cloud than substance. I was so much frightened that my hair stood on end, and my nightclothes fell off. I pulled and pinched your father, who never woke during the disorder I was in, but at last was much surprised to see me in this fright, the more so when I related the story and showed him the window opened. She and Richard talked over her experience. They conclude uh, that ghosts were more common in Ireland because the people were more superstitious than in England and so were more susceptible to the power of the devil and therefore more superstitious and therefore there were more ghosts. I, I don't know, it's very 3am logic. Also hinges on the Irish being, you know, backward and superstitious, unlike the rational English with their great feats of reason, like the barnacle goose and refusing to adopt the Gregorian calendar. Anyway, at 5am, their host came to check on them. She told them she had been that night with her ailing cousin, who had passed away in the early hours. She then asked if they had been disturbed, and said that, when any of the family are dying, the shape of a woman appears in the window every night till they be dead. This woman was many ages ago got with child by the owner of this place, who murdered her in his garden and flung her into the river under the window. But truly, I thought not of it when I lodged you here, it being the best room in the house. We made little reply to her speech, but disposed ourselves to be gone suddenly. What she had seen sounds eerily like a banshee, a term meaning spirit woman, but used specifically to refer to an apparition that appears at a home to shriek three times when one of that family dies. There's a whole range of banshee traditions around Ireland, but these core elements are fairly consistent within them, as are references to the banshee's dramatic hair. Could Anne just be making this up? It would be 
odd if she were. Like I say, she's not hitherto been one for drama. And there's a bit I missed out from what I quoted. Anne tells us that when the woman screamed three times, what she screamed was, a horse. Okay, well, that's really quite silly. But the traditional cry of lament in Irish is, a horn. And for a dazed Anglophone unacquainted with the Irish language or customs, that might well sound like a horse. And if Anne were inserting a banshee story, it would be a strange mistake to make. Did it really happen? Who knows? Well, leaving banshees to their shrieking, the Fanshaws received word from the king that they should entrust the seal with the Baron of Inchquin, and this time he would stick to the royalist side. He was a hardline Presbyterian and wasn't too chuffed about Cromwell's independence taking over. Anne and Richard went on to Galway, there to take a boat to Spain. Galway had been ravished by plague, and a local merchant who hosted them greeted them by saying, You are welcome to this disconsolate city, where you now see the streets grown over with grass, once the finest little city in the world. I feel someone should put that on a sign somewhere. Anyway, they avoided any infection, and were soon aboard a merchant ship bound for Malaga. Here now, our scene was shifted from land to sea, and we left that brave kingdom, fallen in six or eight months into a most miserable sad condition, as it hath been many times in most kings' reigns, God knows why, for I presume not to say, but the natives seem to me a very loving people to each other, and constantly false to all strangers, the Spaniards only excepted. Well, you know, what with all the invasions, colonization, and religious persecution, being a bit cagey around English people seems pretty legit to me. We pursued our voyage with prosperous winds, but with a most tempestuous master, a Dutchman, which is enough to say, but truly, I think the greatest beast I ever saw of his kind. I can't tell whether his kind refers to his status as a captain or as a Dutchman. But regardless of his beastly tempestuousness, their voyage went very well, crossing the Bay of Biscay and rounding Iberia without issue. But... As they passed the Straits of Gibraltar, a ship came into view, a Turkish galley well manned, and we believed we should all be carried away slaves. When she says Turkish, it should be pointed out she doesn't literally mean from Turkey. Turkish was used to mean just sort of vaguely from the Islamic world. In this case, this galley well manned was almost certainly a ship of the Barbary Corsairs, pirates under the protection of North African emirates, who constantly menaced Mediterranean shipping. While they may not have been Turkish themselves, the Ottoman Turkish state was open to trading with them, and often keen to make use of them in times of war. The actual pirates themselves were from all over Europe and the Mediterranean, a hodgepodge of some of the most desperate people in the world and their main business was slavery. At least the threat of it. 
The pirates could make good money ransoming their captives, so it wasn't always straight down the salt mines. Also, the emirs wouldn't tolerate them taking Muslims as slaves, and a treaty with Queen Elizabeth had granted protection to English subjects as well. But things like that take time to process, and whoever you were, if the Corsairs captured you, you could, at the very least, expect to be chained to an oar or locked in a dungeon for a few months before anyone bothered to take notice of you. If anyone bothered to take notice of you. Merchant ships weren't unprepared, though. In fact, they tended to sail with a full deck of cannons and a battle-hardened crew. This made for some rather aggressive business practices sometimes, and indeed the actual difference between pirate and merchant can often be one of semantics. The ship the Fanshawes found themselves on, as it happened, was armed to the teeth. Problem was, their tempestuous beast of a captain had gotten a bit greedy, and had quite literally stuffed the ship to the gunwales with merchandise, including stashing it on the gun decks. To the extent that there wasn't enough space to, you know, load the cannons. As you might imagine, this caused a bit of a flap among the crew. So the captain decided to honour a great Dutch maritime tradition and crack out some pre-battle booze. He called for brandy, and after he had well drunken and all his men, which were near 200, he called for arms and cleared the deck as well as he could, resolving to fight rather than lose his ship, which was worth £30,000. There's a method in this madness. Like I say, it's a fine line between a merchantman and a pirate ship in these days, and the captain figured that if they could appear like cutthroats as well, then the corsairs might not be quite so keen. To do so, he couldn't have any girls around. So Anne and her maid were locked in his cabin, while Richard took up pistol and cutlass and took his place among the crew. It was too much for Anne, and she hammered on the door until a cabin boy came to answer. Quite what he thought when Anne demanded he give her his clothes is not recorded, but she gave him half a crown and dressed as a sailor, and took her place on the deck by her husband. And yes, this is a renaissance story, so there has to be cross-dressing and or pirates at some point. That's just the rules. As the corsairs approached, the captain made everyone look like they were getting ready for a fight. But the corsairs were in a galley, a quick shallow boat, highly manoeuvrable, but without much space for cannons. They had a good chance if they boarded, but the merchantmen had the advantage of firepower, or at least they would have done if the guns had been loaded. So, to paraphrase Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, this was an embarrassing position for the merchants to be in, but the Corsairs had to respect the fact that they'd opened the gun ports to what appeared to be a full deck of loaded cannons, and the merchants had to respect the fact that they were not loaded. So without anyone losing too much face, they had a quick parlay, then both did a runner. In the beginning of March, we all landed, praise be God, in Malaga, very well and full of content to see ourselves delivered from the sword and plague, and living in hope that we should one day return happily to our native country. Notwithstanding, we thought it great odds, considering how the affairs of the king's three kingdoms stood, but we trusted in the providence of Almighty God, and proceeded. 
They got off the boat and lodged with a local merchant, quite a common practice for middle-ranking travellers. Their stuff was still all on the boat, but they could deal with that later. Now was time to spend a few days just taking it easy. On the third day, however, the ship exploded. Anne writes that this was by the negligence of a cabin boy. Hmm, I don't know. I'm wondering about that brandy-swigging captain who's clearly not the best at managing munitions, but fine, blame the cabin boy. The next day we went to Granada, having passed the highest mountains I ever saw in my life, but under this lieth the finest valley that can possibly be described, adorned with high trees and rich grass, and beautified with a large, deep, clear river. Over the town and this standeth the goodly vast palace of the kings, called the Alhambra, whose buildings are, after the fashion of the Moors, adorned with vast quantities of jasper stone, in many courts, many fountains, and by reason it is situated on the side of a hill, and not built uniform, many gardens with ponds in them, and many baths made of jasper, and many principal rooms roofed with mosaic work, which exceeds the finest enamel I ever saw. She also saw a Moorish tapestry that had a section of true Tyrian purple, it is so glorious a colour that it cannot be expressed. It hath the glory of scarlet, the beauty of purple, and is so bright that when the eye is removed upon any other object, it seems as white as snow. Um, do other people get as excited about needlework as I do? Um, okay, I'll, I'll not get distracted. She also talks about the gatehouse of the Alhambra. High above this gate was a bunch of keys cut in stone likewise with this motto, until that hand hold these keys, the Christians shall never possess this Alhambra. This was a prophecy they had, in which they animated themselves by reason of the impossibility that ever they should meet. Except the inscription actually says, God is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet. She then tells the story of King Ferdinand firing an arrow at the beginning of the siege of Granada and the arrow hitting the key and this being somehow the hand holding the key. I don't know. I've looked up a load of stuff about these carvings and the inescapable conclusion is that tour guides have been coming up with all manner of nonsense since ever their scurrilous trade first was plied. But there's also a spooky thing. They have in this place an iron gate fixed into the side of the hill that is a rock. I laid my head to the keyhole and heard a noise like clashing of arms, but could not distinguish other shrill noises I heard with that. But tradition says it could never be opened since the Moors left it, notwithstanding several persons had endeavoured to wrench it open, but that they perished in the attempt. The truth of this I can say no more, but there, that there is such a gate, and I have seen it. Yeah, weird. I looked this up as well and couldn't find anything about it anywhere. Anyway, I thought it was a bit more cool than the thing with the key. Okay, enough tourism. They went to Madrid. Here, Richard teamed up with the royalist ambassador, Francis Cottingham, to try to get some help from the King of Spain. This was a bit of a tall order. Spain and England hadn't exactly been best buddies in the past, and Spain was embroiled in a war with France. Portugal and Catalonia were in revolt against Spanish rule. In fact, Portugal was by now de facto independent, and it was only a couple of years or so since Spain had lost the Netherlands. But Spain had all those colonies and treasure fleets and so on. 
but all that treasure was now giving European economists a rather blunt introduction to how inflation works. So, Philip IV, not the chirpiest of chappies at the best of times, was not in the mood for helping anyone. An event that Anne relates probably didn't help very much. During their time there, another English ambassador showed up, a parliamentarian ambassador named Askew. I very much doubt Philip IV was any warmer towards him than the royalists, but he did tolerate him being there, and that in itself was an insult to the royalists. Okay, well that would have been just one more thing for Richard and Cottington to deal with, but one of Cottington's retainers, a chap called Prodgers, got chatting with an English merchant called Sparks. They were just passing the time of day on the street, but they got onto the subject of what a pain that Askew fellow was. A few other English royalists chipped in, and they all got a bit cross. So much so that they decided to kill him. And I don't mean some sort of elaborate assassination, I mean, without a second thought, they burst into the inn he was staying at and stabbed him to death over his lunch. Now, even in the 1650s, this isn't how you do diplomacy, at least not at lunchtime. So they twigged that this had maybe been a bad idea and legged it. Sparks went into a church to claim asylum. I'm not really sure how church asylum was supposed to work, but in this case it didn't. He was dragged out and later executed. During all this, guess what? Anne had another baby, a daughter, Elizabeth, who sadly died after 15 days. It was altogether not a good time. So they began their journey back to the king. They went north to San Sebastián, or Donostia, 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 I'm actually not sure how Basque um, is pronounced, um, Donostia. Um, I never saw so wild a place, Anne writes, and says that its inhabitants were like to like with their wild country. We've already had a bit of this with the Cornish and the Irish, and it's going to come up a lot, not just with Anne, but with most travel narratives from this period. The idea of wildness and civility. It's one of these concepts that's so ubiquitous, it's difficult to unpack. I don't expect to be able to do so fully right here. In short, though, the idea of civility seems to center around control control of the self, of society, and of nature as well. Now, of course, all human populations do this in one way or another, but for the metropolitan cultures of early modern Europe, the attitude seems to have been that if this civility wasn't at least a bit like what the ancient Romans did, then it didn't really count. If you didn't have big cities, enclosed farms, a strict class structure, and lots of statues, then you were probably just doing things at random. You were a wild person. should also be noted that here in the Basque context, there may be some truth in the wildness of the place, though not because of anything wrong with the Basques. Rather, it had been a theatre of various Spanish conflicts, both internal and external, and it is very likely that Donostia in the 1650s was a bit, shall we say, worse for wear. Anyway, they jumped on the first boat to Nantes that they could find. 
and I am sure to our cost we found the tr proverb true, for our haste brought us woe. Yep, we can now add hurricane to our list of bad things that have happened to them at sea. The mast split and all but seven of the crew went overboard. When the weather calmed, those remaining seven couldn't find any compasses. They also decided this was an appropriate moment to get absolutely steaming. Thus, between hope and fear, we passed the night. They protesting to us, they knew not where they were, and truly we believed them. For with fear and drink, I think they were bereaved of their senses. So soon as it was day, about six o'clock, the master cried out, The land! The land! But we did not receive the news with the joy belonging to it, but sighing said, God's will be done. Not only did they make it ashore, it also turned out they drifted into the mouth of the Loire and were only about a day away from Nantes. They hired some donkeys to carry their things and although they couldn't find anywhere to stay, we had very good fires, a Nantes white wine and butter and milk and walnuts and eggs and some very bad cheese. And was not this enough with the escape of shipwreck to be thought better than a feast? I am sure until that hour I never knew such pleasure in eating. And come on, I'm sure the cheese wasn't that bad. From Nantes they hired a boat to take them to Orléans, and it sounds like they had a great old time. Every night we went on shore to bed, and every morning carried into the boat wine and fruit and bread with some flesh which we dressed in the boat, for it had a hearth on which we burnt charcoal. We likewise caught carps, which were the fattest and the best I ever eat in my life. And of all my travels, none were, for travel's sake, as I may call it, so pleasant as this. For we saw the finest cities, seats, woods, meadows, pastures, and champagne that I ever saw in my life, adorned with the most pleasant river of Loire. These days, we might seek more dramatic scenery for a holiday destination, maybe some of those high mountains in the Sierra Nevada, but never underestimate early modern people's capacity for getting really excited about agriculture. I guess this is an example of some proper full-on civility we're getting here. From Orléans, they made their way back to Paris, there to have a good old catch-up with the now Queen Mum, Henrietta Maria. So on that note, I should probably catch you up on what's been happening with her boy Charles II. With Cromwell getting too big for his boots, the Kirk party in Scotland had thrown in their lot with the king, but on the very strict condition that he signed the Solemn League and Covenant and established Presbyterianism as the official practice of all three kingdoms once he was restored to the throne. So, he went to Scotland, signed the Covenant, and at least looked like he was getting on board with Presbyterianism. And Richard was summoned to join him there. However, the Kirk party had also been giving the Scottish military a big old shake-up. One might be tempted to scream, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, at them, but they were thinking more about politics and religion than about what was happening on the battlefield. 
Former engagers were purged, as were those who indulged in vices like drinking and gambling and, you know, stuff that normal soldiers typically do. This made them all that little bit godlier, but removed the numerical advantage they had previously enjoyed. I'm not really qualified to suggest how much of an impact this had, but it does seem like quite a mental thing to do when you've got a major battle coming up. One way or another, they met Cromwell's forces at Dunbar, and the Scots were utterly crushed. Almost half the army was taken prisoner and either died on the march south or were sold into indentured servitude in the Caribbean. The south of Scotland fell into Cromwell's hands. Charles was crowned King of Scots at Schoon, as a way of I don't know, saying sorry, I suppose. And I think this is the point at which Richard shows up, though Anne doesn't give exact dates of any calendar system. She, meanwhile, went back to England, and just to take stock, she's got two children with her and she is pregnant again. She also had to face the fact that corresponding with Richard was going to be extremely difficult. I now settled myself in a handsome lodging in London. With a heavy heart I stayed in this lodging almost seven months, and in that time I did not go abroad seven times, but spent my time in prayer to God for the deliverance of the king and my husband, whose danger was ever before my eyes. I was seldom without the best company, and sometimes my father would stay a week, for all had compassion on my condition. I removed to Queen Street, and there in a very good lodging I was, upon the 24th of June, delivered of a daughter. In all this time I had but four letters from your father, which made the pain I was in more difficult to bear. After this, Anne went to the home of Richard's family at Ware Park in Hertfordshire. She was there when she learned that the king had marched south with what soldiers he could muster, and Richard had gone with him. Cromwell had cornered them at Worcester with an army of 28,000 against Charles's 16,000. Still, the royalists held a defensive position and the battle was closely fought. In the end, though, they were overwhelmed. Charles escaped, covered by a cavalry charge led by the wonderfully named Major Careless. He may or may not have hidden in an oak tree at some point, but either way, he escaped to France. That kind of thing wasn't an option for Richard. His pile of secret documents had only grown since he went to Scotland, and when defeat became inevitable, he had to stop them from getting into enemy hands. So in among all the chaos and confusion, Richard was running back to his office to shovel papers into the fireplace. For three days, Anne writes, it was inexpressible what affliction I was in. I neither ate nor slept, but trembled at every motion I heard, expecting the fatal news, which at last came in their news books, which mentioned your father a prisoner. He had been taken prisoner along with 10,000 others, but his secrets were safe. Anne went to London, where she saw hundreds of poor soldiers, both English and Scots, march all naked on foot. Richard was permitted to meet her. After he had spoken and saluted me and his friends there, he said, Pray let us not lose time, for I know how little I have to spare. This is the chance of war, nothing venture, nothing have. So let us sit down and be merry whilst we may. Then taking my hand in his and kissing me, cease weeping. No other thing upon earth can move me, 
Remember, we are all at God's disposal. He had apparently been treated well by the officer in whose custody he was placed. She doesn't say whether this was because the captain in question was particularly merciful or whether it was out of deference to Richard's status. Either is possible. Even Cromwell's more radical parliamentarians weren't always egalitarian. We've had lots of examples by now of royalists and parliamentarians being nice to each other, but it does always seem to coincide with them being of the same social class. Now he had reached London, though, he was placed in solitary confinement. He was kept prisoner, without the speech of any, so far as they knew, ten weeks, and in expectation of death. They often examined him, and at last he grew so ill in health by the cold and hard marches he had undergone, and being pent up in a room close and small, that the scurvy brought him almost to death's door. In the early hours of each morning, though, Anne would take a dark lantern and sneak to the window of his cell. Thus we talked together, and sometimes I was so wet with the rain that it went in at my neck and out at my heels. But that's not to say that they let their upper lips wobble. They were coming up with a plan. Anne was going to appeal directly to Cromwell, who had a great respect for Richard, and would have brought him off to his service upon any terms, so maybe with a hint that Richard might be willing to switch sides. Cromwell, though, demanded to have proof that Richard was in fact dangerously ill. Turned out that Cromwell's physician, John Bathurst, was also physician to the Fanshawe family, and was very happy to draw up a medical certificate. I guess I should stop being so surprised at things like this. England's relatively small middle class at the time meant that there wouldn't be many degrees of separation between these people. I guess the interesting thing is that the big hitters in this conflict on both sides often moved in the same circles. With a certificate from such a trusted source, Cromwell agreed to release Richard upon £4,000 bail. Sir Henry Vane said they should just hang him, reasoning that if he had liberty for a time, that he might take the engagement before he went out, upon which Cromwell said, I never knew that the engagement was a medicine for the scorbutic. Uh, uh, Apparently, this is funny. I don't know why. It's some sort of pun that doesn't make sense anymore, but I wanted to mention it because apparently Cromwell had a tendency of, like, cracking dad jokes about things all the time, and I, I I just find that rather charming, really. Anyway... Anne was uh, four grand in debt to Cromers, but Richard was free, sort of. As for his treatment, well, they still weren't quite sure how scurvy worked in those days, so Richard was sent to Bath to take the waters, or whatever it is you're supposed to do there. Presumably he had some fruit and veg as well, because he was soon on the road to recovery. So Anne and Richard, guess what, had another daughter. Then they went to live in Yorkshire and just sort of chill for a bit. They had another daughter, Margaret, and Richard wrote a translation of Louis de Cameron's Lusiads, which ended up getting some rave reviews. I found all the neighbourhood very civil and kind upon all occasions, the place plentiful and healthful and very pleasant. But there was no fruit. We planted some, 
and my Lord Strafford says now that what we planted is the best fruit in the north. Best translation of Portuguese literature and best fruit in the north. Nice one, Fanshaws. We lived there with great content, but God had ordered it should not last. For upon the 20th of July, 1654, at three o'clock in the afternoon, died our most dearly beloved daughter Anne, whose beauty and wit exceeded all that I ever saw of her age. She was between nine and ten years old, very tall, and the dear companion of my travels and sorrows. She lay sick but five days of the smallpox, in which time she expressed so many wise and devout sayings, as is a miracle for her years. We both wished to have gone to the, into the same grave with her. I thought I'd quote that in full, basically just in case you'd been listening to historians who say that no one cared about their kids until the Victorians came along. I mean, uh, that is a very interesting theory, but from my reading, it just doesn't seem to be particularly, you know, true. Richard, um, who had only been released on bail, mind you, was summoned to London to attend trial. It went on for a while, but Anne unfortunately doesn't go into the details about the proceedings. To be fair, she gave birth to a daughter, another Anne, lost another daughter, Elizabeth, then both her and Richard got dangerously ill, and then she gave birth to a son, another Henry, ten weeks early, and, you know, she had a lot on her mind. I'm skimming through this bit, but it's basically just a litany of death and disease. Eventually, though, they recovered, and heard the news that Cromwell had died. Richard was still under investigation, so they were not yet home and dry, but they certainly weren't any further away from home, nor any more damp than they had been, shall we say. In fact, they may have been within reach of a towel, if that's not stretching the metaphor too far, because Richard had been catching up with an old chum of his. Philip Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, Earl of Montgomery, Lord of a bunch of other stuff, was the son of another Philip Herbert, Lord of all the same stuff, who'd sided with Parliament in the Civil War. They weren't particularly Puritan, but they were far too posh to put up with the likes of the King telling them what to do. On the other hand, being posh, they also didn't like little squirts like Cromwell getting ideas above their station. So, after the regicide, father and then son just sort of sat in Parliament in a bit of a huff. Younger Philip, Richard's pal, was starting to get the eebie-jeebies about what would happen if Charles II came back and took over now Cromwell was gone. So he thought he might get a foot in the door of royal favour by sending his son, who was, guess what, also called Philip, off to join the royal court as soon as possible. This would work, and little Philip would end up being knighted at the age of eight, because he was posh. Oh, and like all right and proper posh families, they had a history of insanity. And when little Philip was all grown up, he developed a tendency to kill people for no adequately explored reason. But that's another story. Anyway, Papa Phil was wondering if Richard would be a good fellow and take his little psycho baby over to France and, I don't know, wave him around in front of the king or something. What's that? You're under a court bond? Don't worry, I'll sort that out. I am very posh after all. I, I get to do that sort of thing. Um, so he pulled some strings and in a few months Richard was back in France and at liberty. 
albeit with somebody's mentally unbalanced child. Charles II was in Spain, but on his way back to Paris, and appointed Richard as Secretary of the Latin Tongue, which sounds odd, but considering Richard was fluent in Portuguese, Spanish, and Italian, you know, you get the idea. But Pembo had only pulled the strings for Richard, and, and her children still needed to get to Paris, and this time she didn't have a pass. What she did have, though, was a distant cousin, Henry Neville, on the Council of State. So she hit him up to see if he'd help her out. He went into the then masters and returned to me, saying that by a trick your husband had got his liberty, but for you and your children, upon no conditions you should not stir. I made no reply, but thanked my cousin Henry Neville and took my leave. I sat me down in the next room, full sadly to consider what I should do, desiring God to help me in so just a cause as I then was in. But then she began to come up with a cunning plan. She went to Wallingford House, the home of the parliamentary commander Charles Fleetwood, which also served various bureaucratic functions, including the issuing of passports. Leaving her maid, who was much a finer gentlewoman than myself, outside, she went in and told the clerk her name was Anne Harrison and she was ever so humble and she just needed a pass so she could go and see her struggling merchant of a husband in Paris. She made a big old fuss about the cost and the clerk totally bought it. He issued a pass for her, two servants and three children, all which he immediately did, telling me a malignant would give him five pounds for such a pass. That was all well and sneaky, but if anyone recognised her, as was very likely, then it might look a bit weird if she were using her maiden name. So she sat down with the pass, and where it said Harrison, she changed the H to two Fs, then the two Rs to an N, the I to an S, the S to an H, the O to an A, and the N to a W. I was unconvinced that this would work when I first read it, but I tried it out for myself. Do it in cursive with a slightly but not unreasonably blotchy pen, and it actually works perfectly. Okay, you have to spell Fanshawe with two Fs and no E on the end, but they didn't actually have spelling in the 17th century, and writing your name in random ways was perfectly normal. With all speed, I hired a barge, and that night at six o'clock I went to Gravesend, and from thence by coach to Dover, where, upon my arrival, the searchers came and demanded my pass, which they were to keep for their discharge. When they had read it, they said, Madam, you may go when you please. But says one, I little thought they would give a pass to so great a malignant, especially in so troublesome a time as this. They sailed to Calais and then hired a wagon coach, for there is no other at Calais. I'm not sure if she means there is no better kind of coach to hire or no other means of transport, but either way, most coaches in those days were an ordeal, only slightly preferable to walking, and the roads didn't help. There is a reason why before she sailed from Spain to France, despite all the danger, and why she's been going on horseback at such times as she doesn't have three sprogs with her. On their way, they stopped at Abbey, about halfway between Calais and Paris. 
When they arrived, an officer greeted them, saying he had been sent to let Anne know that the governor had seen Richard in Paris a week ago, and he was very well. Oh, great! The governor had promised to ensure Anne's safety, but he had gout, so he couldn't meet her in person. Oh, okay, yeah, fine. But he had sent this guy, his lieutenant, to let her know that he would advise me to take care of the garrison soldiers, and giving them a pistol apiece, they would convey me very safely. Okay. So, the next day, ten cavalry troopers showed up to escort her. She gave them their pistol. Uh, a pistol is a, a gold coin, by the way. In France, it's also called a Louis d'Or. And they set off. When I had gone about four leagues, as we ascended a hill, say some of these, Madame, look out, but fear nothing. Because, yeah, that's very reassuring. Suddenly, they were confronted by about 50 horsemen. One of Anne's escort, however, rode up to them, had a quick chat, and they all went away. Anne was quite surprised by this and asked the fellow how he'd managed to scare them off. The French soldiers all found this very funny, and explained that their assailants were all soldiers as well. From the same company, in fact. Yeah, they said, yeah, the governor hasn't really paid us in yonks, so we've got a bit of a sideline in banditry going on. Uh, you've already given us some gold, though, so you're fine. Uh, once again, I'll have to suggest this at the next union meeting. So, with her band of rather affable troopers-cum-brigands, Anne arrived safely in Paris, and the Fanshawe family were reunited. Meanwhile, the parliamentarian government had collapsed, and a coup declared that Charles II would be reinstated as sovereign of the three kingdoms. And then... I don't really know what to say. The restoration happens. Richard and Anne go on embassies to Spain and Portugal. The narrative goes on, and it's very interesting, especially as Charles marries a Portuguese princess and England gives military aid to Portugal. But in terms of Anne and Richard's story, well, they live happily ever after. I mean, Richard dies at some point, but, you know, people do that, and he doesn't die of scurvy or in a cell or get his throat cut by Barbary corsairs. So... I think that's as close to happily ever after as you're really going to get. So, we've come to the end of our first story. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. I had the idea for this almost a year ago, and it feels great to finally get going on it. There's plenty I'm not sure about for the future, though, so any feedback or suggestions are very, very welcome. Would more historical background be useful, or should I pare that down and concentrate on the narrative? I could even do separate mini-episodes to cover the historical details before launching into a new story. And feel free to point out any bloopers. Like that time last episode when I said Gregory the Twelfth, when of course I meant to say Gregory the Thirteenth. I am still cringing about that. Anyway, if you want to reach out, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Adventures Rare. Yep, 
that's the title, but back to front. I probably shouldn't have called this podcast something which would obviously turn out to be the name of a travel agency somewhere, but oh well, too late now. At some point I will attempt to create some sort of website, but that will involve me working out how to do so. Essentially, my understanding of technology runs out circa 1690, and as far as I'm concerned, the fact that you are listening to me now may as well be sorcery. Many thanks for all the help and support I've been given by friends and other podcasters. I'd be totally lost without you. Um, Particular thanks to my dear friend Nathaniel Pendleton, who's had to put up with me blethering about this for months now and has diligently waded through even the more deranged early drafts I came up with. All that remains to say is thanks as ever to Costa Larue and the Baltimore Consort for allowing me to use their music. Check them out at baltimoreconsort.com. Next time, my noble, excellent and illustrious listeners will be embarking on a swashbuckling adventure on board a little thing I like to call the Spanish Armada. See you then.